Today on CityCast Denver. One of my all-time favorite restaurants is Kokoro. It's a family-owned Japanese fast casual place. They've got two locations and the shrimp tempura splash is always great. But I never knew until recently that my beloved Kokoro is the last vestige of a Japanese restaurant empire's efforts to come to America, which they started right here in Denver in 1975. I learned that amazing story and so much more about Japanese food in Denver from my guest today, Gil Asakawa. His new book is a tasty history of Japanese food in America, and it's called Tabe Masho. Let's eat. Today is Tuesday, September 13th, 2022. I'm Bree Davies, and this is CityCast Denver. Just researching this stuff, I'm like, oh, I didn't know that. And thank God for the internet. <laughs> you can trust everything on the internet, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. It's, no it's fact checking needed. Yeah, no. It's already yeah. done. Gil Asakawa, welcome back to CityCast Denver. Hi, thanks. Appreciate it. So, in your new book, Let's Eat, it's a beautiful memoir about your life eating Japanese and Japanese American food. But I have to ask you, because I do know you as a music critic and <laughs> someone that observes popular culture, but you're also a food person. Yeah. And actually, I was just thinking about my history. I started um, my journalism career as a music editor at Westward and was uh, at Westward from 1980 to 1991, big chunk of my adult life. And... I thought of myself as, you know, a, a music guy. And so in writing this book, I, I really had fun. I start out the one chapter about the three main foods that were kind of known in the U.S. as Japanese foods. For decades, Americans would think of sukiyaki, teriyaki, and tempura as yeah. Japanese food, because those were the three things that they were familiar with, mostly thanks to World War II and the occupation troops that were stationed in Japan after the war. Uh, and, and all that kind of other stuff came later. And um, like sushi, like and sushi ramen, and ramen, and the things we think of now. Yeah. And uh, because, you know, actually, it's difficult to find a Japanese restaurant in the Denver area, certainly, that serves sukiyaki. I have to say, I was born in 1980. I was not familiar with sukiyaki. <laughs> I was like, oh, you okay. Know, our, our family still has sukiyaki like on Christmas Day. You know, sukiyaki, shabu shabu, which is like, like another hot pot dish. And, um, and those were like standard dishes. But the reason that I started the book with those three foods is because that is what was known as Japanese food. But I started that chapter not about food. I've started writing about music. Yes. The song Sukiyaki that, you know, Americans know as Sukiyaki. I always thought it was weird because when I was a kid in Japan, I knew it from its Japanese name, Ueo Muite Aruko. The song, yeah. that was the song title. Yeah, song title in Japanese. It means looking up, I walk. And it's it's a sad song about walking and looking up so that the, the tears don't fall down my face. The reason it was called Tsukiyaki when Capitol Records released it in the U.S. is because it's one of the three Japanese words that, that Americans knew. know or English speaking yeah, folks know. English speakers. And really, they should have called it Sayonara because 
that's another word that everybody knows, and it's more appropriate to the lyrics. But it was it got named sukiyaki, and it it really reflects how well known the dish was in the U.S. in the West. Well, and what I found interesting in your book was you were so good at weaving together these ways that Japanese food and culture was introduced to Americans as gently as possible, <laughs> whether it's through a rock and roll song or ways to, you know, like how Kikoman, right, the the brand yeah. was like, hey, uh, you want to make some teriyaki on your barbecue 50s dad? Yeah. <laughs> you can do that. You know, it's just like very interesting to me, but it, it had me thinking about how there's this underlying, like a lot of Japanese culture is underlying in America and we don't even realize that's no. happened in the last 50, 75 years. Yes, it, it really has. It's a post-war thing and it's been very purposeful yeah. on the Japanese side. A lot of it's celebrity driven. A, a lot of it is, you know, when, when a Hollywood star, <laughs> you know, I have this cover of Esquire magazine. I should have brought it with me. A cover of Esquire magazine from the late 80s that has Michael J. Fox and they're calling him the country's most famous yuppie. And the the cover of Esquire magazine has him all dressed up in his, you know, Wall Street yuppie suit and tie. And he's holding a plate of sushi. And by the late 80s, it shows that sushi really became mainstream compared to 1985, the, the movie um, The Breakfast the Club, Club yeah. right? Where that has this wonderful scene and it's on YouTube. And one of them, who's the spoiled rich kid, brings out- Molly Ringwald, yeah. Yeah, Molly Ringwald brings out sushi. What's that? Sushi. Sushi? <laughs> Rice, uh, raw fish, and seaweed. You won't accept a guy's tongue in your mouth and you're gonna eat that? Can I eat? I don't know. Give it a try. So um, that, and that's 1985. So it shows how weird yeah. and elitist at the time sushi was. And then just in a few years, by 1991, for instance, or the, in the 90s, you, you got that TV commercial series. Uh, that, that oh, the Wasabi. Wasabi. You can actually see all this and watch kind of the progression of how things got accepted. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, when you put that in a commercial, it just shows that, it's Americans, identifiable. Yeah, Americans knew what wasabi was. Right. It was an in-joke. Um, but when I was a kid, man, in third grade, people didn't know what you know sashimi was or sushi or wasabi. And uh, I bet the kids that teased me back then, their grandkids today are buying lame sushi from <laughs> At the, the supermarket. Grocery store. Yeah, <laughs> they are. I just know they are. So, you know, you talk about Japanese American food across the country, but you have this great way in the book of bringing it back to Denver. So I want to get into Denver. What is the Denver story of Japanese American food? A lot of it, I think, is the rise of necessity mm -hmm. um, in terms of like, you know, like my wife grew up going to certain restaurants 20th Street Cafe, which sadly is gone, yeah. uh, right by Sakura Square. And in Sakura Square, there, there was a, you know, a, a, a restaurant that was uh, around for a long time before the war. Which one was it? It's, um, uh, my mind just went blank. Akebono. Uh, Akebono. Yeah. Uh, Akebono was originally a pool hall during the war. And 
we have to keep in mind that not all Japanese Americans were locked up during the war. The ones in Colorado lived under a lot of you know racial hatred and and um, restrictions, but they weren't just rounded up and sent off to camp. There was a camp in southeast Colorado, Amachi, mm-hmm. uh, and. Uh, there were Japanese Americans who had settled in the Denver area and throughout Colorado uh, before the war. And so there were people who lived in downtown Denver, uh, at, at least in the areas where, where Japanese were allowed to live, <laughs> which is along the Larimer Corridor and out by Five Points, which is why there are so many Japanese Americans in uh, that attended Manual High School alongside African-American kids. Yeah. But uh, a lot of restaurants were already established, and Akebono was one. It was a, uh, a pool hall, Fred's pool hall, and then uh, and it was right across Larimer from where Sakura Square is today. It's a parking lot right now, mm. and uh, <laughs> it wasn't a great building, I'm sure. So it's not. <laughs> yeah, like, but it'd be better than a parking lot, you know. <laughs> yeah. They paid Paradise, put up a parking lot. <laughs> right. It happens. Um, can't stop it. That's one of the the sad realities. But in the late 50s, they changed the name to Akebono. And then in 1972, when Sakura Square was built, Akebono was still across Larimer from Sakura Square. And then uh, in 1973, they moved to Sakura Square. And like my my wife kind of grew up eating at places like Akebono and 20th Street Cafe. And uh, she remembers going into the kitchen and watching Mrs. Aoki, the, the owner's wife, making tempura. And then she would flick tempura batter onto the tempura as it was cooking to give it kind of a lacy that description feel. in your book just I, I wanted to just go back in time to see this beautiful she still, my fried. wife still talks about that so um but you know we would go to certain places we'd go to benihana which <laughs> i write in the book about and um and people are really people were like you're gonna write about benihana that's not that's not real japanese and i'm like you know it was started by a japanese guy a smart japanese guy who realized how you know what Americans would eat. Americans would eat steak and chicken and shrimp if it was served up a certain way, but not slimy fish, not something stinky. <laughs> uh, he had a rule, you know, he didn't serve sushi. They do now, Benihana serves sushi now, but uh, Rocky Aoki's rule was he wanted to introduce mainstream Americans to fundamental Japanese food. And, and he did a good job because he turned it into a show, right? Yeah. And he made it, safe for whole families to come and sit around the teppanyaki table and and watch a chef have fun and flip shrimp into your mouth or (laughs) all this crazy stuff, make a volcano out of an onion. Uh, (laughs) But your argument was sort of, I included Benihana because in some senses, it's still introducing Americans to Japanese culture in some way. Or I don't know if it's safe to say it's still doing it. It it did its job. Sure. So by like the 80s and 90s, Japanese food wasn't scary or gross or exotic. Mm. Um, maybe some of it was if you've never had sushi. And I know people who didn't have sushi for the first time till like the 80s or 90s. Sure. Certainly. But um, Benihana made Japanese, it was like the gateway drug. Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> and I think it, it served its purpose. It was super important. And I don't think that um, grocery stores would serve sushi today, you know, mm. or a lot of things that have happened or having a 
Japanese restaurant in every suburb or in small cities or towns everywhere. I don't think that would, they, they're not all good. They're not all owned by, you know, Asians even, but, yeah. <laughs> but they're Japanese. And I don't think that would have happened without Benihana. You also, I just have to bring it back to Denver. You mentioned that there was a company here called Denver Tofu that produced mm-hmm. tofu. Yeah. I had no idea. Yeah. Actually, they were around till not that long ago. Really? Because um, my mom used to make something called okara, which is made with kind of the the scum off the top of when you make tofu from soybeans. Like the film, yeah. Yeah, the film. And... Um, she used to make her own okara. You would like fry it up with vegetables and like maybe tiny shrimp and stuff. And I I remember she would make it in soy sauce. And um, my wife wanted her to make some. And it turned out that instead of like making a lot of tofu and taking the skimming and the stuff off, Denver Tofu was around still. And they, it turned out that they would take the okara from their production uh, factory, and it was still in Rhino, what's today Rhino, uh, and they would um, sell it for a pet food. Wow. And um, I think fertilizer, too. And, and we went there, and the guy just gave us bags <laughs> of okara, and we took it back <laughs> to my mom, and, and uh, I, did, I did a YouTube video of her making it. But I love you're talking about the rhino where this right. this place was. And I have to say, going through your book, I, I looked up a lot of the spots that you had mentioned. Um, Fred's Pool Hall, Akebono. Also, the American Legion, the Nisei mm-hmm. American Legion building, which is now the View House. Right. And I'm just sort of getting a better picture of what sort of Japantown and, and sort yeah. of what would be our, quote, international district if we had a more prominent one like other cities do today. Well, I think it's happening. Yeah. Where, you know, because of the, the Chinatown project where we, you know, finally got to take down that offensive plaque. <sighs> And they're working, and even Mayor Hancock said, yes, we're going to, we're aiming to do a museum, Asian American Museum in, in lower downtown. Um, that'll pay homage to all the communities. But people have no idea that the stretch of Larimer, mm-hmm. Larimer, right? A famous street, you know, from like 19th all the way to the 30 somethings was dotted with businesses owned by Japanese and Japanese Americans. My wife grew up, Her she worked when she was just a kid in a supermarket owned by her family at the, what, 20, oh, the, 20, yeah, 24th, the match, 25th? Yeah, I think it was Matchbox. Matchbox is, yeah. We talked about this last time. Was, it was a, a grocery store. Yeah, it was, it was her family's grocery store. That whole stretch, pharmacies, gas stations, hotels, all owned and operated by Japanese Americans. So, Gil, I would love to close up with where in Denver could I get the Gil Asakawa meal and what would it be like? How could we create your ideal Japanese meal in Denver, even if it means like taking something from a restaurant that doesn't exist anymore and a current day, you know, maybe the Sushirama? Like, what's the Gil Asakawa Japanese American meal in Denver? My Japanese American meal actually probably would not include sushi. Okay. Because sushi. Growing up, sushi was not something we ate all the time. I, you know, when I was a kid, I didn't go to the supermarket and have sushi three times a week. Uh, <laughs> like I hear some of these kids today saying, no, it was something special. Ramen was much more common, but my mom wasn't a big fan of ramen. She liked soba and udon noodles more. 
there are certain things that are like my Japanese comfort food. Yeah. You know? What are those? Uh, tonkatsu, which is the uh, breaded pork cutlet, which is different from tonkotsu, which is a style of ramen. Is there anywhere you get that in Denver? Oh, yeah. Almost every Japanese restaurant will serve it. Is there um, one you love? Uh, mm, <laughs> yeah. Tokyo, actually. I just had one not too long ago. It was a ramen with curry topped with tonkatsu. That's so a lot it, of flavors. <laughs> <laughs> it was really good. And uh, Tokyo with an eye by In the Shadow of Coors Field. Yes. That's one of my favorites. Ramen Star. I really like it because he, he makes his own noodles. and uh, But it's a small place. And, and then, you know, Sushi Den, longtime favorite, really reliable, super popular. My mom's favorite, and she's picky. So <laughs> I, would say, I would take your mom's recommendation then yeah. for sure. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I've, I've had people who influence my foodie inclinations all my life. My mom, my dad did the grilling for the family. My wife is a great cook. And um, my father-in-law was a real fan of restaurants and food. So um, I dedicated the book to him. And uh, I don't know, I've always, uh, I appreciate food. And I appreciate people who appreciate food, and I learn from them. Gil Asakawa, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. And here's what else Denverites are talking about. More details are leaking out from the much-anticipated renovation of Casa Bonita. I chatted about this last month with Nine News investigative reporter Jeremy Hohola after he filed an open records request for details on the new owner's plans. And now Hohola has even more to share because he managed to track down James McLaughlin, the man who operated the old jail photos and old time portraits booths for 45 years. I'll drop a link to the story in the show notes for this episode. But if you want your own piece of CB history, McLaughlin says he is selling a bunch of old signs and displays that once hung inside the Pink Palace. And finally, if you know us at CityCast Denver, you know that we love pizza. But we've never really tackled Denver pizza on the show. So we're planning something big and crazy, and we need your help. I want to hear your hottest takes on Denver pizza. What's the most underrated place or the most overrated? or the straight-up best pizza in Denver. We want to hear from you. Leave us a voicemail with your name and neighborhood, and you might hear it on the show. Our number is 720-500-5418. That's all for today here on CityCast Denver. If you enjoyed the show, why not take a minute to tell Benny Hanna founder Rocky Aoki about us. Rate the show wherever you get your podcasts, and subscribe to our morning newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Bye-bye. Did you see the reviews people left where they said it was my birthday and that's why they're leaving a comment? (laughs) And I appreciate it.